Now our text for this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The word of the Lord. Now, let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. Thankful, Father, for how you have heard our prayers, how folks have been healed, how folks have been comforted and given peace and joy, even in the midst of hard times. Our Father, we pray this morning for Elizabeth Mednikow in the hospital. We pray that you would bring healing. Help the doctors, Father, cause their eyes to see and their ears to hear that they might know what to do in this specific case and that they might bring healing. Father, reveal the mystery of this ailment to them. That's our prayer this morning. We pray for Jim Varner. Father, we pray that he would cease to have problems with these clots. That, Father, the doctors might discover the exact remedy for this. We pray that you would bless him and bless him and Suzanne. Father, give them many, many years together upon this earth and bless them. We thank you for the blessing they are to this body and have been to this body. We pray for Dr. John Cruz and for Kaki that you would comfort John. Bring your omnipotent comfort to bear upon him that he might look forward with anticipation for what you have prepared for him. I pray that, Father, you would give peace to his soul that is beyond imagination. Bless Kaki and comfort her and help her as she comforts John and bless John that he would be a comfort to her. Bless Kate Morrison, Father. We pray that you would heal her. It just seems impossible, but Father, we know your healing power. And we pray that 
you would draw close to Kate and give her life, give her years yet. Bless John Morrison and give him strength for these days. And we thank you for the blessing that he's been to Kate. And we pray that you will continue to give him a unique grace to bless her. And now as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. Our Father, it is impossible for John Sartell to speak in such a way that we would grow in the very core of our being, that we would be changed in the very core of our being. But we've heard your voice in this place previously, and we know that you can teach that way and preach that way. And so, our Father, we ask that this morning you would draw close to your children, and that's who we are. We're your children, asking you to teach us for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Transcendent evil at war with God's plan. Over the years, I've heard the question over and over and over again. John, when will you preach on Revelation? I heard that for over 50 years. Well, that's what we're doing. For the first time in my life, I'm preaching through the book of Revelation. And I have repented, I mean this seriously, I have repented from not doing it previously. And some of you are sitting out there saying, John, I told you so. Uh, I'm not going to call you self-righteous, but maybe you are. Uh, <clears throat> but with the request to speak on the book of Revelation, there was always the most prominent question. You know what it was? Well, at least tell us about the beast and about the Antichrist. Well, I'm preaching through Revelation, and we have come in the 12th and 13th chapters to the subject of the transcendent evil of Satan and his beast and the Antichrist. After today, the next few Sundays, that will be the subject. So let's put it in context. The fifth and sixth trumpets in chapter 9 introduced a new subject to what had been portrayed by the seals and the trumpets. With the seals and the trumpets, we saw the witnessing, we, we've been witnessing the events taking place between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And as he ripped away those seals that had hidden what would be happening. As the trumpets blew announcing what would be happening, there was something strange about it. With all the judgments, the wars, the droughts, the famine, the persecution, with all the upheavals, 
the supernatural evil of Satan had not been mentioned. Now that changed in Revelation chapter 9. There we saw this demonic storm that came out of the abyss of the bottomless pit. That was in chapter 9, but not till then. And after that, the seventh trumpet is blown that signified the return of Christ, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Well, after that seventh trumpet and after that scene of Christ's return, there are seven scenes, there are seven signs that are placed before John to witness. I prefer to say seven different scenes. The first five of those scenes speak of the horrendous evil of Satan. In this first scene, in chapter 12, there are three characters, a woman, a dragon, and a child. Let's look at it. Verses 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. The first person we see is a woman clothed with glory. It was like the light of the sun was emanating from her. The moon with its light was under her feet. It's a beautiful scene, beautiful woman. She wore a crown with 12 stars in it. This woman was pregnant and was crying out in the pains of birth. Throughout the chapter, so who is she? Throughout the chapter, she represents the people of God. The people of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When we refer to the church, what pronoun do we use? What pronoun should we use? The pronoun that's used in Scripture. She, the feminine pronoun. The woman in these opening verses, the woman in the opening verses represents the people of God in the Old Testament. The Messiah has not yet been born. By the end of the chapter, she rep- by the end of, of chapter 12, she represents the people of God in the New Testament. You'll see that change. It's not hard to see. You say, I've got that. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God reveals that he is sending a Messiah. And from whence will that Messiah come? Whence does the Messiah come? You know the answer. Israel. Messiah will come from Israel, from the people of Israel. But then God gets more specific. We read in Genesis 15 that he will come from Abraham's lineage. Then in Genesis 49, 10, 
We read more specifically that he'll come from the tribe of Judah. Look at Genesis 49.10. We've seen this previously. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs, to him who owns it shall come and the obedience of the nations, the world will be in obedience to him. We read on that this Messiah will come from the house of David, from the house of Jesse. God will produce a child, the Messiah from God's people. The woman is clothed with the sun. The, the great light around her represents the glory of God. She's clothed with the glory of God. Remember the times that we've seen Jesus in the New Testament when he's transfigured before the disciples or later in Revelation. There's this glory that emanates from him. But this is the glory of Christ, the glory of God. And it's not just a sign that... that emanates from her head and, and, and her shoulders. But the moon, the light of the moon, the soft light of the moon is at her feet. She wears a crown of 12 stars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This woman is Israel about to give birth to the Messiah. Well, who is the child? Here's, that's who the woman is. Who's the child? Thus, this male child is that one that was long prophesied to come from Israel. What was he destined to do? Look at verse 5. To rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, this was not a tyrannical rod of iron. That rod of iron is used in other places in a good way, talking about the Messiah, and it means just a universal rule. It will be an absolute and universal rule. Now, by this time, I hope at least some of you have said, well, why hadn't John mentioned what Isaiah said about this child? That would be the perfect time to do it. And you're right. It's the, we know it by heart. We say it every Christmas over and over again. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us, who is us? Israel. For to us, a child, not a man, a child is born. A son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's who the child is. Got that. We know who the woman is. We know who the child is. Oh, who is the dragon? This represents Satan himself. He's also the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. If you've read ahead, you've said, oh, I know. Because down in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12, this dragon is actually called the serpent. He's described as a red dragon. His color is blood red. He's known for his murderous ways. He's known for his bloodlust to destroy God's creation. 
He's a monstrous figure. He's a hideous figure. He has seven heads. In mythology, the multi-headed creatures denoted that they were the multi-headedness denoted that they were difficult to be killed. You whacked off one head and there's six more. Just impossible to kill this creature. He had ten horns. And wherever you see horns in Scripture, it simply means power, authority and power. He didn't have one horn or two horns or three horns or four horns. We sometimes talk about the many points of a, of a buck. This, this monstrous, hideous figure has ten horns. Power is incredible. He had power on earth, but he was also transcendent. For we read that his tail swept down a third of the stars. That was that's simply denoting that he had power above the earth. He had power outside the earth. He was a transcendent evil. Now, those are the players. But to understand this passage, what was happening? What does this seem? What's it about? Well, God had delivered a prophecy of death to this powerful dragon creature, to this powerful servant in the Garden of Eden. After the fall, you know the passage. It's in Genesis 3.15. It's on your scripture sheet. I will put, he says this to Satan now, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now think about it. This dragon, this Satan figure, had heard God make that prophecy. This is what's going to happen to you. From that point, Satan had set out to thwart the providence of God, the plan of God that said this will happen. He was saying, no son of Eve will crush my head. He was saying to God, you cannot rule me. Your providence cannot rule me. Now what did Satan heard? Satan had heard that a son of Eve will crush his head. Now God Satan knew that God favored Abel, Eve's son, that he was part of a godly lion. And so Satan inspires Cain to do what? To kill Abel. That's my answer to you, God. No son of Eve is going to crush my head. This continues to happen all through the Old Testament. When Saul is king and he sees in David a threat, Satan inspires Saul month after month 
year after year to kill David. To destroy David. If Satan could destroy David, destroy the children of Abraham, there would be no descendant of David to sit on the throne. Then there was God's people down in Babylon. They had been thinned out. They were in exile. It seemed like completely defeated. And Satan tried to put an end to them. There was a wicked, wicked man named Haman. And he had devised a plan to use the government to destroy, to commit a genocide and kill every Jewish person. And God raised up a queen. Her name was Esther to stop that from happening. So how's the dragon pictured in this scene? He hadn't changed. Look at verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So what happened when Jesus was born? Satan discovered that the wise men, and remember, Satan is not omniscient. It's only God that's omniscient. He didn't know everything. He didn't know God's plan. He just knew the prophecy. When Satan discovered the wise men from Persia, who said that the ruler had been born in Bethlehem, the city where Micah had prophesied the Messiah would be born, in Bethlehem. He inspired the maniacal and paranoid Herod to give the order that all the babies in Bethlehem under two years old would be what? Would be killed. That's the picture here. Satan is waiting to destroy What an awful thing. People, we've talked about this for weeks now. This is what happens when the demonic evil is joined with the kings and presidents of this world. What did Jesus say about Satan? He said many things about him. But look at John 8, 44. Jesus was speaking to members of the Sanhedrin, to some leaders in Israel. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And then he says this, look at it. He was a murderer from the beginning. He murdered Abel. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. People, back off from this a minute. All through history in the Old Testament, Satan tries to thwart the plan of God. That's what he's doing. God had laid out his plan and Satan says, no, no. Revelation 12, 1 through 6 says that he was looking for the birth of Messiah that he might kill him. We saw last week that Jesus' first act when he was anointed Messiah was what? He went to confront Satan to do battle with him and Satan tempted him. Satan said to Jesus, Hey, you want the kingdoms of the earth? I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. 
Just bow down and worship me. What happened when Jesus was victorious and just walked away and said, no, I'm going to do it my way? What happened? Immediately, the murderous Satan continued to conspire against Jesus. He conspired through the Pharisees. He conspired through the Sadducees. He conspired through the Sanhedrin. The last year of Jesus' life, their single desire, their single plan was we must destroy this man. And what happened? Look at Luke 22, 3 and 4. They're in that upper room. And Jesus said, someone's going to betray me. And John said, who? And Jesus said, the one that I hand the sop to. He dipped the sop in the gravy and he handed it to Judas. And we read this, Luke 22, 3 and 4. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Satan was successful this time. Satan seems, or excuse me, John seems to miss this in those opening verses. Because he says in verse 5 of Revelation 12, but her child was caught up to God on his throne. What, 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 what happened? John merely skips. He's written the gospel. He knows the gospel. He skips from the incarnation to the ascension. Here's the incarnation. The child is born. Satan's waiting. And he just skips to the ascension of Christ. What happened in between is in the Gospels. Jesus, in the end, was caught up into heaven. After the Gospels, Satan sees this Jesus ascending to glory. Now, next week, and you do not want to miss this, we will see that John speaks of the blood of the Lamb. Indeed, the blood of the Messiah was shed. Indeed, he did die. Satan was giddy with triumph as the Messiah of God had died an ugly, humiliating death on a Roman cross. Satan thought his power on earth had been too much for the Messiah, for this descendant of Eve. He hadn't delivered the death blow, Satan thought. In Luke twenty-two fifty-three, we read the words of Jesus in the garden. Remember the authorities came to arrest him. What did Jesus say in Luke twenty-two fifty-three? But this is your hour and the power of darkness. I, I do not like that translation. The Greek word there, for power is exousia. It's translated there, power. It means reign in domain. He's saying this is the reign of darkness. This is the reign of evil. He's speaking about the reign and realm of Satan. He says, this is your, this is your night. 
This is your domain. This is Satan's hour. Well, Satan thinks he's won the war. He's, just, he's defeated God's son. Now, next week, we're going to see a battle that takes place in heaven. And it takes place after the cross and after the resurrection. It's one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. It's so powerful. So what do we take away from this? What do we take away from the powerful scene we've just witnessed between the woman and Satan and the child? First, we must not be surprised at the nations of this world being opposed to God, being opposed to his reign, and being opposed to his word. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to last week's message. Where do we live? We live in the kingdoms of this world. They're under the domain of Satan. Now, it is true. You and I dwell in a nation, maybe the greatest that the world's seen, except for the kingdom of God. We live in a nation that has a unique constitution. We live in a nation where we enjoy a unique freedom. Look around at our culture. And you must admit, this is not even open for debate. The culture of this nation is now constantly trying to thwart the plan of God, just like Satan. What is God's plan? God's plan is his reign by his word, by his law. It is salvation through Christ and Christ alone. There's no other way. It's the only way. Now I ask you, is this what's being taught in our public schools? Is this what's being taught universally in our institutions of education? Is this what is being embraced by the universities? No, it's... And you say, well, those are out there worldly things. They're neutral. Really? You're terribly naive. Go find me. Go find me a neutral institution in this country. Is this the way, God's way, God's plan, God's word, God's law, God's cross, God's salvation? Is this the way of life desired by the press, by the media? Is this what is taught in all the art that comes out of Hollywood? Is this what's taught by government? Is this what's taught by Wall Street? No. All of those institutions are engaged in an effort to thwart the plan of God. Look at the big picture. What is Satan doing? It's just, I'm going to thwart God's plan. I'm going to obstruct God's plan. I'll not have God's providence dominating my life. And even, you know, 
at times, even the church that is supposed to embrace and love and promote God's plan gets caught up in the power of the kingdoms of this world. In the very, what was supposed to be the church of God. I, I saw this. I was to a supposedly Christian seminary and was taught by men who were ministers wearing robes like this, who denied the incarnation. What were they doing? They were thwarting the, the plan of God. Oh, the incarnation was not God's plan. Jesus died on the cross is not God's plan. This morning, there are individual churches, entire denominations across our land that are like Satan opposing the incarnation, opposing the very cross on which Christ died. Now, sadly, this is the way of the world and the kingdoms of this world. But there's good news. Listen to me. There's good news. That is the very world in which Christ came. He didn't come because the world was good. He came in his mercy to save a depraved world. He came to be salt and light and a savior. And he's called us to go into that world. To be a light. Don't despair. Don't despair. We just, it's what the Bible says. We live in a culture that is trying to thwart the plan of God. And we're going out in that world every day and saying, I'm with Christ. You couldn't stop him. You never will. You never will. And that's, and you say, I'm, I'm with Christ. And Christ has called me to go out in the darkness of this world and be light. My friend Steve Brown used to say, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking my light's so small and I'm so weak. I'm just like a little match. And Steve Brown would answer that by saying, light a match on a dark night and walk away and see how far you can see that one little match. People, it's dark. And sometimes our light is weak, but don't despair. Do not despair. God's plan cannot be conquered. It's immutable. Look with me, and we'll talk about this next week. Look with me at the last sentence in our responsive reading. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Counsel of the Lord. You, you can't thwart it, Satan. You can't stop it. Maybe it seems that way. Maybe it seemed that way when Jesus was dying, this humiliating death on the cross. But God took that cross and smashed Satan and killed him. We're going to see it next week. So, our first point is, we must not be surprised at the nations of this world striving to thwart the plan of God. Don't let it get you down. It's always been there, and it always will be there. Just go out and be the light. Secondly, and lastly, and this gets hard. I didn't see this at the beginning, and it smashed into my life at the end of the week, and it hurt. All of us, all of us 
have been involved personally in opposing or thwarting God's plan. I came to this point in the message, and when I wrote those words, I was taken back. It was like I'd been slapped in the face when I realized the truth that all of us as Christians at points in our lives have tried to thwart or obstruct the plan of God in our lives. Remember when Peter confessed that Jesus, this is on your scripture sheet, remember when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? In the next breath, the very next breath, he tried to obstruct the plan of God. He stood right into Jesus' way and said, you can't do that. He had just confessed that he was the Son of God, Savior of the world. And Jesus, what did Jesus tell Peter? You're right, Peter. I am the Son of God. I am the Savior of the world. And I must go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter, Messiahs don't die on crosses. They don't get killed, Jesus. And what did Jesus say to Peter? He didn't put his arm around him. Say, Peter, you've got so much to learn. You're not as near as He didn't do that. He looked him right in the eye. And if you understand this passage, there was a fire in Jesus' eye. And he looked at Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Satan. He called the man who would be the preeminent disciple, Satan himself. That's what Satan had been doing for thousands of years since the garden, trying to obstruct, trying to thwart the plan of God. People, we need to be reminded of where we came from originally. We were a part of his domain. We read this two weeks ago, but come back to it this morning. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. You ought to memorize this. And you were dead. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to Christ's covenant. He was speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. You were dead. He says to the church, remember where you came from. You were dead. And you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. That's where you came from. And then Paul says this. He wasn't saying this because he's Jewish and he was talking about Gentiles. Look what Paul said. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, the children of hell, the children under condemnation, the children of Satan. Paul says we were all that. It's like a slap in the face to me. That's where I came from. And sometimes we revert back. In fact, it's almost on a daily basis. When I lie, I'm not just deceiving you or deceiving to whom I lie. I'm saying to Christ, you're not going to rule my life right now, right here. When I love someone or something more than I love Christ, when I'm selfish, 
when I give in to hate, when I give in to prejudice, when I stay away from prayer, when Jesus comes, I'm full of anger, spite, and he comes and he points me toward forgiveness. I don't want to forgive, Jesus. I don't want to forgive. I want to do it my way, the old way. I'm thwarting the plan of God. This should have so much impact on you because there's not a single person here, if you're a Christian, there's not a single person here who in this week didn't in some way thwart the plan of God. It's, it's humbling, isn't it? That's why Jesus said, when your right hand leads you to sin, cut it off. When your right eye leads you to sin, pluck it out. Because sin, every sin, stands in obstruction to the kingdom of God and to Christ. Well, Jesus was serious when he called Peter Satan. He was saying, do you realize who you're following? It isn't me, Peter. Do you realize who you're imitating? Wherever Jesus went, and this is one of the beautiful things about the gospel, and you've heard me say it thousands of times, wherever Jesus went, what did he do? He pushed back the darkness. He pushed back the darkness everywhere. Made the blind to see, the deaf to hear. Pushed back against the darkness. That's where we want to be. That's Christ's covenant. That's where I want to be, as John Sartell, is where you want to be. I want to push back against the darkness, not be a part of it. But sometimes, in our sin, instead of pushing back the darkness, we're pushing back the light, the light of Christ. Jesus died to save us from that. To save us from that. We need to confess again the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus over our lives. We're not going to sing a hymn like Just As I Am and walk down an aisle. We're going to sing one of the great, great hymns of the faith that in the face of transcendent evil, that in the face of Satan himself, sings in glory to God, O oh, Father, you are sovereign. What a hymn. What a confession to make at the end of this worship. Hymn number 75.